Our Old Testament passage is a very well-known one, Isaiah 52, 13 through 53, verse 12. One of the suffering, uh, one of the song, servant songs of Isaiah. One of those places in the Old Testament where the light of the gospel shines through with such brilliant clarity. This is God's word. Let's give it our full attention. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. Just as many were astonished at you, so his visage was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths at him. For what had not been told them they shall see, and what they had not heard they shall consider. Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness, and when we see him there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed." All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken, and they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. Our New Testament text, Matthew sixteen, twenty-one through 28 page 866 in the Pew Bible, Matthew 16, 21 through 28. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. 
And Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with His angels in the glory of His Father, and then He will repay each person according to what He has done. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. Amen. Thanks be to God for His Word. Pray with me now that He will bless it to our hearts. Gracious Lord God, we thank You that You have given us Your Word, the most precious thing this world affords. These words, O Lord, are sweeter to our lips than honey and more precious than gold. Here is wealth and riches of an eternal kind. Lord, we pray that You give us a heart to hunger after Your Word to receive it as it is, the very Word of God. Let us not be, O Lord, like those who hear the Word and walk away unchanged, just more hardened in unbelief. But Lord, let us grow in faith. So stir us up, strengthen us, bless us now as You speak, for we listen. In Jesus' name, Amen. In the previous... Verses in Matthew chapter 16, we saw Peter representing all the disciples give a wonderful and clear and accurate uh, confession of faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus asked his disciples there in Caesarea Philippi, he said, who do people say that I am? They gave various answers. And then he says, well, who do you say that I am? Driving the question home to them. Um, and Peter responds for everyone, you are the Christ. Son of the living God. And Jesus says, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Flesh and blood has not revealed that to you, but my Father in heaven has revealed that to you. Jesus says, Your answer is, is right. I am the Christ. I am the Son of the living God. It's a wonderful confession of faith. Uh, and it's the truth about Jesus' identity. But then it leads to two follow-up questions that, that we must ask. The first one is, what does it mean that Jesus is the Christ. If that's his identity, what does it mean for his mission? What's the job description, we might say, of the Christ? And the second question is, what should we expect those who are following this Christ to have as their mission? What should their lives look like? The two questions are, are connected. You can't really, you can't separate them. Um, what you believe about the mission of Christ is going to directly impact what you believe about what it means to be a follower of Christ. If the mission of Christ is one of earthly honor and blessing and, and, and influence, then we can expect those who follow Christ to have earthly honor, blessing, and influence. But if, inconceivably perhaps to many, the mission of the Christ is cross-bearing, then we should expect nothing else for those who follow Christ but cross-bearing. So this is why, loved ones, no sooner has Jesus established with His disciples that He's the Christ. They've made that good confession. He says, you're right. Now let me tell you what that means for me and what it means for you, followers, after me. 
Uh, he tells us here, he shifts, he shifts uh, an emphasis here, right in, in chapter 16. It's also a shift, really, in, in the whole trajectory of his teaching to them now. Um, he, he begins to teach them. This is an ongoing lesson. He's going to teach them as he turns from where they are, Caesarea Philippi, way up north in Israel. They're going to make their way down to Jerusalem where he's going to suffer and die. And he's teaching them all that way that his mission is suffering. His mission is to be the one who pays the price for their sins. And if you're going to be his disciple and follow him, then you are going to suffer with him. But it's worth it. Absolutely worth it. Three headings this morning. Uh, our, first, our first one is this. Being the Christ requires the cross. Being the Christ requires the cross. This is verses 21 through 23. So 21, verse 21, as we said, is introducing this shift in Jesus' teaching ministry to his disciples. It says, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. Jesus has hinted at this already with his disciples. Back in chapter 8, verse 20, he said, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Uh, and if you follow me, you probably won't either. Right? It's kind of what he's indicating there in, in chapter, chapter 8. Hinting that he has come to be a sufferer and a servant. But now he's, beginning to, now, he's, now he's beginning this new chapter in his teaching ministry with them, and he is giving them this core lesson that he is going to suffer. That those who should receive him, welcome him, love him, praise him, and bow to him as their Christ are going actually to be the ones who put him to death on the cross. And this is not an accident. He's telling his disciples here, this is not going to be uh, an unintended consequence of, of his ministry as the Christ or just an unfortunate side effect of his being the Christ, but he's going to push through it. But no, this is his mission as the Christ. He says here that he must go to Jerusalem, that he must suffer many things, that he must be put to death. This is a divine necessity for Jesus. This is what... This is the very essence of his God-given mission. This is exactly what he came to do, to die and to suffer. This is what the Old Testament predicts so clearly, right? Especially in places, uh, Psalm 22, his hands and feet will be pierced, right? Uh, they, will, they will cast lots for his clothing. Or Isaiah 53, if you read earlier, uh, he's going to be the one who is the, the suffering servant who was led like a lamb to the slaughter, Jesus says, the text tells us here that, that Jesus shows his disciples that he must suffer many things. I think he's showing them in the word of God. He's showing them the promises, the prophecies, showing them the types and shadows of the Old Testament law, right? All the, all, 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 all the sacrifices, the Passover lamb whose blood had to be smeared across the lintel of the door in Egypt so that the angel of death would pass by. All, all, all of it is pointing to the great fact that the Savior who's going to come, the Christ who's going to come, is going to suffer for His people and pay the price of their sins. Not, not suffer just in sympathy and solidarity with their suffering, as some people reduce Christ's suffering to, but suffer to save, to take their sin and their guilt and the wrath of God for their sin and bear it all and free His people from it all. 
Jesus is saying, this is what he must do. Basic job description of the Christ. And if you took that away, you would have a Christ who couldn't save. A crossless Christ would be a Christ who could not save you. So Jesus is emphasizing all this to his disciples. It's, 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 it's starkly different from what the common expectations of, uh, of the Messiah were uh, in, in the culture around them. The Christ that they were looking for, that Israel was looking for, would be a political Christ, a powerful Christ, a military Christ. Someone to come and give them freedom from their enemies and be a great hero full of strength and, and power and, and charisma. The king of glory who would come and crush all his enemies. And Jesus is saying, let me, let me, let me correct your, your thinking on this, disciples. And he shows them through the scriptures that, uh, yes, the Christ is the king of glory and he will come in judgment, but first he has to come and suffer and die. First the cross before the crown. And this is at the center of what it is for him to be the Christ. It is, it is the cross. One, one writer says that, he says, suffering was the essence of messiahship. Suffering was the essence of messiahship. Calvin puts it like this. He says, it was necessary to inform the disciples that Christ must commence his reign, not with gaudy display, not with the magnificence of riches, not with the loud applause of this world, but with an ignominious death. Jesus is, is, is showing us, loved ones, that the cross is at the heart of who he is. You cannot separate him from the cross. And, and, and perhaps even more profoundly, we could, we could say you cannot separate God from this. This is not only who the incarnate Christ is, but this shows us more than anything else anywhere else God's attitude towards His sinful people. Doesn't it? Christ comes as the Messiah with this mission to suffer and die for the sins of His people because God has sent Him out of love for His people like this. Um, this reveals God to us. Carl Truman has a wonderful book on Martin Luther, Luther on the Christian Life, it's called. And he, he's, he's writing in there this, at one point about Luther's theology. And, and, he, and, he, and he sums it up like this. He says, the fact that God humbled himself, took flesh, and died a painful death via a method typically reserved for the scum of the earth is a powerful revelation of who God actually is and how God acts. Christ hanging on the cross is constitutive of the very identity of God toward fallen human beings. The cross shows us more than anything else who Christ is and who God is. How He loves and forgives every sinner who repents. He is the one who saves sinners. This is His mission. And this is why He's come. Because he so loved the world. And Peter hears this. He hears what Christ is saying about his suffering and his death. Um, and he's upset by it. He's very upset by it. He's so upset by it that he has the audacity uh, to, to pull Christ aside and rebuke him. Um, that, that's stunning, isn't it? He, what Peter just said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. 
And now as Jesus is saying what that means, Peter's saying, wait, 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 not, not that kind of Christ. That, that's not right. Let me, let, me, let me correct your thinking about what you're supposed to be doing. Um, right? he, he says it in the strongest possible language. He says, far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. In the Greek, there's a double negative. Um, in English, we say a double negative is a positive. But in Greek, it was a way of emphasizing the negative. Right? This shall, no, never, God forbid, this shall never, ever, ever happen to you, Christ. Why is Peter upset? Why, why is he so upset that, that Christ is telling him this is his mission? I think it's because Peter, Peter has a different agenda for, for, for Jesus. He has a different idea of the kind of Christ he wants Jesus to be. He, he has this idea, I think much in line probably with the general expectations of his day, that he is going to usher in a glorious end-time kingdom now, very soon. None of this cross business, none of this suffering, dying stuff. Let's just get to the kingdom of glory. Peter expects triumph and victory and peace and glory for Christ. And probably for himself with Christ. He doesn't want Jesus to die for him. He doesn't need a weak Christ. He's a strong Christ, an impressive Christ. Now, Peter's, Peter's a believer, right? He's just confessed a wonderful confession about who Christ is. I think we see some encouragement for us here, brothers and sisters, uh, that, um, that uh, even believers can get confused about the identity and mission of our Lord Jesus Christ, as Peter does here. And I think, like Peter, we can also get upset with Jesus for these same reasons, can't we? Um, we, 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 we resist that he is the Christ who came to suffer, that he is the Christ who appears weak, that he is the Christ who died to save us, right? We want to see some political action taken by our Lord Jesus Christ. We, we, we want to see justice now. I don't have to wait for the kingdom of heaven to come to see peace like a river flooding and, and fixing everything. Right? I, I want to see this come now, not to have to wait for it. But Jesus says to us, he is the Christ, and first comes his humiliation. First comes his suffering. And that is our salvation. And then after that, after that comes glory. Peter to tempt Jesus here is actually, um, P- Peter is, as, as, as Jesus points out, he, he, is, he is getting on, he, he's taking Satan's side in this temptation. Uh, Jesus responds with these shocking words in verse 23 to Peter. He says, get behind me, Satan. Talking to the one who he just said, on this rock, I'll build my church. You confess the good confession that I, that I am the Christ. Now he says, get behind me, Satan. Um, Peter is, uh, is really taking Satan's side here. Um, if you think about the way Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness back in Matthew chapter 4, uh, Matthew 4, 8 through 10 says, says this, Again, the devil took Jesus to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it's written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. So Satan comes to Jesus in the wilderness, and he says, You don't deserve to suffer and wait and be humiliated and humbled. You deserve the kingdoms of this earth. You deserve glory now. A crown, not a cross. Take the easy road. Bow to Satan and get the crown without the cross. And Jesus says, Be gone, Satan. 
And now Peter is saying much the same thing, right? Take the crown. Skip the cross. And so Jesus says to him, get, get behind me. Uh, he, he, he calls Peter an offense. Here the Greek word is scandalon. Uh, it means like a, a stumbling block that you trip over, uh, something, something that trips you up. It also has another meaning of a trap. Um, he, he, I think he's describing Jesus, right? Uh, Jesus is describing Peter as, as holding out this temptation to him uh, that, that you, can, you can have the Christ without the cross. You can be the Christ without the cross. Go right to the crown. Uh, and Jesus is uh, not going to give any ear to Peter's temptation. He is so committed, gloriously committed, isn't he, our Lord Jesus, to obedience? He's so committed to suffering for you and for your sin. He's so committed to dying for you that he will not give the slightest temptation any room in his mind. So as soon as he hears Peter say, you can have this, all right, none of this cross stuff, he says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. He has come, loved ones. Our Lord Jesus came and he was absolutely, adamantly committed to die for you. And he would not let anything dissuade him, right? We're so different. Uh, usually when temptation comes, especially a temptation like this, to get out of having to do something that we don't really want to do, something painful and difficult, we, we usually say, tell me more, Satan, right? right. Tell, tell me a little bit more about you know, how I can avoid this difficult, painful thing. But not your Lord Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters. Though all the wrath of God is right ahead of him, and he's knows he's, he's going into it. He will not listen to anyone who tries to turn him away from facing that. Because he's committed to obedience to his Father and love for his people. Ironclad obedience. Being the Christ requires the cross. This is the first thing we see. The second thing we see in verse 24 is that following Christ requires the cross. Being the Christ requires the cross, but following him requires it as well. Uh, Jesus turns here from talking about his own suffering and death to what this means for those who follow him. He tells his disciples that if he is facing a life of suffering, ending in death, then those who follow him will, will face the same thing. Do you desire to follow Christ? Do you desire to follow him? Be a disciple of Christ. Jesus has lots of people. We read about so many of them in Matthew who, who, who admire him from a distance, um, like some of what he's doing, like some of what he's saying, want something he can give them perhaps, but to follow him, be a disciple all in. Uh, Jesus' word here to his, to his, to his disciples, um, he says, if anyone desires to follow me. It's a word that actually is really connected with the idea of, of choice, of, of will, of decision. Um, uh, one, one commentator writing about this says, nobody becomes a follower of Jesus by drifting into it. There must always be a wholehearted decision. Now, it's a decision you can't make unless the God of sovereign grace gives you the freedom to make that decision, unless he opens your heart to, to, to make that decision by, by His grace. But at the same time, it's a decision that Christ calls you to. A wholehearted decision to follow Him. You cannot drift into discipleship. You've got to decide, I'm going to follow you, Jesus. If you're going to follow Christ, Jesus says you need to embrace self-denial. Self-denial. That's... Uh, 
That's a counter-cultural ethic, if ever there was one, isn't it? Uh, especially right now, it seems. Self-denial. Our culture says, celebrate yourself. Do everything you want to do. Pursue your dreams. Pursue your ambitions. Don't let anything get in the way of, 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 of meeting your needs and your desires. And if anyone tells you otherwise, don't listen to them. Promote yourself. Serve your own self-interest. Right? That, that's, that's the gospel of our culture. That If our culture had a catechism question written out, number one, what is your chief end? Your chief end is to glorify yourself and enjoy yourself forever. Right? And, 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 and uh, it's not just what our culture celebrates, but it is what we ourselves, by our sinful nature, celebrate. And that is the rule we live by. All sinners. Um, we're curved in on ourselves. So Jesus, claimed, uh, Jesus, Jesus challenged to us here to be a disciple means to deny yourself, forsake yourself, is, uh, is a great challenge, isn't it? Uh, we, need, we need to stop making ourselves our chief end, deny ourselves and make Him our chief end. We need to say no to ourselves, say no to our lust, and say no to our anger, and say no to our jealousy, and say no to our bitterness, and say no to our anxieties, and, and, and say, say no to anyone or anything that is, is trying to take the place of Christ in our hearts. Think of others first. Think of Christ first. Self-denial is humility. It's gratitude. It's kindness. It's self-forgetfulness. It's becoming preoccupied with Christ and with serving others, denying ourselves. Jesus shows us the depths of this self-denial as he goes on in verse 23, and he says, take up your cross and and follow me. Uh, If you want to follow Christ, embrace self-denial and embrace the cross, he's saying. Um, Cross is such a familiar word and such a familiar symbol, right? It's just become a sort of a, a, a pictogram of Christ or, or of Christianity, right? Um, but uh, it's uh, Jesus' Jesus' words here are shocking. They're they're really startling. No one would say a thing like this. Take up your cross. Take up your instrument of shameful, um, humiliating, excruciating. Execution? Take up your gallows? Take up your electric chair? Take up your lethal injection? Right? That's something of the force of what he's saying. Take up your death penalty and follow me, is what he's saying. It's a shock, shocking thing to hear, isn't it? Um, take up your cross and follow me. What, what does he mean? Uh, we should be clear what he doesn't mean. The cross that we take up in discipleship is not the cross that Christ himself bears. Christ's cross is the cross of God's wrath for our sins. And that's once for all. He bears our sins. He dies for our sakes. He suffers God's wrath for our sins. uh, And uh, and that's it. That's all poured out on him. None left for us. So when we take up our cross, we are not bearing the wrath of God for our sins or anyone else's sins. Um, when, When we take up our cross. Uh, we, are, we are putting to death our, our sinful natures and desires. We're practicing self-denial and we're, 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 we're walking with Christ in faithfulness as a witness to Him. Jesus is talking here about, about becoming a martyr. Um, everyone, loved ones, who decides to be a disciple of Christ is committing to being a martyr. 
Martyrdom is uh, right, not necessarily a literal thing. Church tradition is full of, of, uh, of many martyrs who lost their lives for Christ. Um, most of the 12 disciples standing here, according to tradition, will be put to death, will actually die for Christ's sake. Um, but, uh, but every Christian is called to die for Jesus. First, you die to yourself. And then you walk a life of self-denial and cross-bearing. And, and then at the end, you die for Christ in Christ, however you die. This is the calling of every Christian. Um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a German theologian uh, from the 20th century, wrote some well-known words about this cross-bearing. He says this, The cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ suffering which every man must experience is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. It is that dying of the old man which is the result of his encounter with Christ. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give our lives to death. Thus it begins, the cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Bonhoeffer himself uh, would go on to experience something like this as he was put to death in a Nazi prison camp for his refusal to compromise in leading the German confessing church's resistance to Hitler. Long before Christ worked in him, he took up his cross and he followed Christ to the end when he became a martyr for Christ. Brothers and sisters, uh, this, this is the call of discipleship, to embrace the cross and follow Christ. Not just, not just once, not just uh, one decision you make at one point, but, but, but a life of following after him. The word in verse 24 for follow communicates ongoing action, a whole life process that is being described here by, by Christ. Every morning you wake up and you pick up your cross and you follow Jesus again that day, your, your entire life summed up by saying no to self and yes to Jesus Christ. This is the Christian life. You see, um, loved ones, the, the, the cross is, is no less essential to living as a Christian than the cross is to Christ. As the cross is essential to Christ and His mission, so your cross is essential as a Christian. Maybe you could look back at a time um, when you say, yes, you know, back then I, I was taking up my cross. I was following Christ faithfully. I was uh, living for him with all my heart and all my soul and all my mind and all my strength. But now you're drifting, gotten busy with other things, uh, and you've, you've pushed Christ to the back burner. And, uh, and, you, and, you, and honestly, maybe you don't really want to go back to cross-bearing, self-denial, because it's hard to do that. Or may, maybe you've committed to Christ, you're walking in self-denial, and you feel the weight of the cross, and it's heavy, and you're still committed to it, but, but boy, it is hard, and you start to think, is this really worth it? Is this really worth it? Right? You see other people, and they seem to be living free and happy for themselves. Is it, is it worth it to keep up? Or maybe you've never, ever, once surrendered to Christ and said no to yourself and yes to Him and said, yes, I'll take up my cross and follow you, Jesus. And so, loved ones, what do we do with, 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 with hearts like these? 
Jesus draws us now. He calls us to take up our cross and follow Him, but then He says, now, let me tell you why it is worth it. Why it's so worth it to take up your cross. He gives us three reasons in verses 25 to 28. This is our third and final point. Following Christ is worth the cross. Three reasons here that Jesus gives us. Each one starts with the word for. He starts in verse 25 with the first reason. He says, for whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. If you want to save your life, lose your life. If you want to keep your life, then give away your life. If you try to live by grasping and getting for yourself personal ambition for your own self-interest, you will not really live. You will throw away your life and waste your life and have a joyless and unsatisfied life in the end. You will not find pleasure, Jesus is saying. You will not find full, good, meaningful, rich life. You'll find just death and emptiness and meaninglessness at the end. You'll find hell at the end. But this is the great paradox of our existence. If you give away your life, if you give it to Christ and you give it to the cause of Christ and the people of Christ, then you'll taste joy and satisfaction You will know what Jesus' words mean when he says it's better to give than to receive. Um, If you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, you will enjoy all that he has to give. You will have all these things added to you. Jesus' first words as he's preaching in Matthew, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is for those who give their lives away to Christ, for Christ. This is the logic of how God works. This is the logic of, his, uh, of the gospel of, of Christ. The first shall be last, and the last shall be first. So, brothers and sisters, make it your ambition. Make it your ambition to lose your life for Christ. Because if you do, you will gain your life. There's a prayer in the book, The Valley of Vision. It's a collection of, of Puritan prayers and devotions. And The very first prayer in there is about this very thing. It says, let me learn by paradox that the way down is the way up. That to be low is to be high. That the broken heart is the healed heart. That the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit. That the repenting soul is the victorious soul. That to give is to receive. That the valley is the place of vision. Let me find thy light in my darkness. Thy life in my death. Thy joy in my sorrow. Thy grace in my sin. Thy riches in my poverty. Thy glory in my valley. This is the good life. Living to give all to Christ. Jim Elliot, the missionary to Ecuador, gave his life for Christ and his kingdom. uh, Said these wonderful words that so... Summarize so well what Christ is saying here. He says, He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. You cannot keep your life. Give it up and you'll gain it. Second thing Jesus says, the second reason it's worth uh, living like this as a disciple of Christ, uh, it's worth giving up your life to gain your life, is, is, is that your soul is worth it, that your soul is more valuable than anything else. 
And uh, this is the only way you can save your soul. He says in verse 26, what profit, what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? What will a man give in exchange for his soul? Jesus is setting up a sort of an equation for us or a comparison for us. On the one hand, you could you can slave away for everything this world has to offer and you can be successful at it and you can gain everything there is, the whole world. But if you lose your soul, what's it worth? Utterly worthless if you don't have a life, a soul to enjoy it. If you could gain everything this world has to offer, would you trade that for your life, for your soul, for life with Christ in heaven for all eternity? Right, your, your soul is eternal, and you will live forever in heaven or in hell, loved ones. Would you rather give up all for Christ now and enjoy an eternity with Him with the richest blessings that heaven has to give? Or spend a few years grasping, taking, living for yourself, and then lose it all? forever and ever. J.C. Ryle writes this. He says, There's nothing on earth or under the earth that can make amends to us for the loss of our souls. There's nothing that money can buy or man can give to be named in comparison with our souls. The world and all that it contains is temporal. It's all fading, perishing, passing away. The soul is eternal. That one single word is the key to the whole question. Your soul is eternal. Loved ones, if you refuse to take up your cross and follow Christ, you'll lose your soul. You will not gain eternal life. But if by the grace of God you do give up your life, your soul, to follow Jesus Christ, you will gain Him, you'll gain heaven itself, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Joy that is full and lasts forever. This is the only worthwhile investment you can make. Third thing Jesus promises in verses 27 to 28. He says that taking up your cross is worth it because he himself will one day soon come and consummate his kingdom. He himself will one day soon come back and consummate his kingdom. And when he does, he's going to repay everyone according to their works, he says. Verse 27, he promises his final coming when he comes not this time to die, but to judge the living and the dead when he comes to, uh, to, to bring about the final judgment for all men. And, and at that day, everyone's going to stand before him and give an account of their lives to him. And, and, and when you stand before him, will you show him a life of self-seeking, living for this world and ignoring Christ? He says here, he will repay you according to your works. If you never lived with any thought to Christ, he will not on that day have any thought for you. But if you give yourself to him, surrender to him, trust him, give all that you have and are to him, then he will reward you richly with all that he has to give with himself. Now, loved ones, he's not saying that our eternal destiny is depending on our good works. Don't confuse what I'm saying or what Christ is saying here. Uh, um, no one is accepted into the kingdom of heaven or acquitted on the day of judgment because of his own discipleship. But discipleship is the fruit of a life that has been made new in Christ. Um, You're justified and you will be vindicated on the day of judgment because of Christ's righteousness and Christ's obedience and Christ's sacrifice, not yours. 
But if you've accepted Christ, your crucified Savior, and if you are following Him, then, then your life is going to reflect some of these things, some of the sacrifice and the self-denial. So live as a faithful disciple, knowing the judgment is coming. And he will repay all according to their works. And finally, Jesus says here in verse 28, he's driving the point home by reminding us the, the certainty of his coming. It's easy to think judgment day is way, you know, that's, that's way off in the future. People have been saying judgment day, judgment day, judgment day forever. And it still hasn't happened yet. But Jesus is saying there are some standing here who will not taste death before they see the kingdom come in power. Um, and he doesn't mean that uh, the disciples would live to see his return as the Son of Man to judge right then, uh, the last day. But he's saying some of these disciples who are living here are going to see the kingdom of God begin in glorious power. And that's the guarantee it's going to be finished in glorious power too. Uh, these disciples, most of them, are going to see Christ rise from the dead, ascend in glory, pour out the Holy Spirit, the church spreading like wildfire. They're going to see the beginning of the powerful reign of King Jesus in heaven working out as the gospel goes forth. And he's saying, if, you're going, if, if you see that, you know that's the guarantee, this process of the kingdom coming or that, that, that's already begun and it's going to be consummated. So live, live in light of that reality. He is coming back and he's coming back soon as he promises us in Revelation. He's coming back soon. And that reward, right? He's saying, your reward is ahead of you. Your cross-bearing won't last forever. Bear the cross and you'll receive the crown. So live as a faithful disciple. Brothers and sisters, embrace self-denial. Embrace your cross daily and follow Jesus Christ. This is what it is to be in union with Christ and live in communion with Christ. He was crucified for you, the cross at the very heart of who he is because of the love of God for you and your sin. And that is his salvation for you. So follow him. Take up your cross and follow him. He will come again. It is worth it. Let's pray. Lord, we pray. We pray that you would work mightily by your word in our hearts that you work by your powerful spirit, the very spirit of the risen Lord Jesus Christ, to lead us on in faithful fellowship with Christ in his suffering so that by any means possible we would attain the resurrection of the dead. We pray this in his precious name. Amen.